Hello and welcome to Socialist Night Live on Socialist Think Tank. Um, at the moment, we've got two guests on with us, uh, one that is familiar to you and another that may be familiar to you from a, a pretty nice uh, conference speech at Labour Party conference um, last, I think, was it last year? Was this year? Yeah. This year. Last it was year. La- it was last year, but this kind of, I, I work in um, school years. Yeah, so it, feel, yeah, yeah. it feels like this, this year because it was in September. This school year, yeah, this season. Um, and we've also got another guest who's going to be coming on uh, at some point, which is why we're in a three at the moment. But we've got another guest coming on very shortly. And tonight we're talking about um, we're talking about Momentum's policy platform, and we're talking about Momentum in general. We'll talk about some current affairs. So please do get involved if you're in there. Give us a share. Give us a like and all those things. Um, if you're listening on the podcast, you might want to write a comment or talk about something because uh, I've never said that before and I've heard other people say that on podcasts and I don't really know how that works. But anyway, uh, so do get involved in the show. Um, so firstly, I'm going to come to Mark. Mark, tell me about why you are interested in this particular show. Well, I'm interested in it partly because I'm a member of Momentum and also as well, I think we need to, uh, in the left, be a bit more regimented in what we put to conference. We've done it before with all the Momentum motions that went to conference and I think we need to speak about them. Uh, Nottingham Momentum did a brilliant um, podcast series where they got people and talked about each, each motion that was put out last year in the policy primary. I think it's a great idea and it's just taking on from... Um, CLPD, you know, um, what they did with uh, um, with with their mo- motions. I think it's going to be a good idea. We've passed one at my branch earlier today as well, unanimously. We'll talk more about that later, probably. Yeah, okay, yeah, let's talk about that one later. Um, that sounds very interesting, so thanks for that, Mark. And also, you've got someone, as I say, less familiar to maybe the socialist think tank audience, unless you're involved in the Labour Party. And when Mark was talking about conference there, we have to dumb things down sometimes as well. Or not dumb things down, but we can't assume that our audience knows everything. So we're talking about the UK Labour Party conference there. Um, you know, we've got listeners, viewers from around the world, so we don't want to, um, you know, assume that everyone knows absolutely everything about that. So if um, if I start sounding a little bit uh, like I don't know what I'm talking about, Andrew, it's because I don't know what I'm talking about, but also because I'm trying to... Be- Come bring the audience with us. So um, tell us a bit about yourself, Andrew. Yeah, so um, I'm from Durham. Uh, I'm active across County Durham and the North East. Uh, I'm a Momentum activist um, and a Unite community activist um, and obviously involved in the Labour Party. Um, so yeah, I've been active for about six years um, and yeah, committed to socialism. <laughs> excellent, excellent news. So um What's your what's your involvement in momentum? In a, in a minute, I'm going to ask what momentum is, and we've already got some comments coming in that I'm going to address very shortly. But um, yeah, what's your what what's your position in momentum? Do you have a position? So, or? I don't currently hold a position. I helped form uh, Northwest Durham's Momentum branch, um, which was the first of its kind in Northwest Durham, um, and the first Momentum branch in Durham for a couple of years now, in County Durham for a couple of years now. Um, so. Yeah, that's that's my experience in momentum. Um, 
I was, um, like Mark, um, a member of the Leo Panic Leadership Programme, which was put on by Momentum last year, um, done partly to commemorate Leo Panic, the political historian, but also partly to build up um, leadership skills within, within the socialist movement. Um, so yeah, that's my experience, um, but yeah. Okay, so what is Momentum then? Who would like to go on that one? What is what is Momentum? How was it born? What was it? What does it do? I mean, I can go with that if you want, Paul. Um, Momentum is an organisation of 18,000 plus people. Um, it was formed under uh, John Landsman in 2015 um, to support Jeremy Corbyn's leadership campaign. Um, and it continued as a way to organise socialists within the Labour Party um, to make sure that we're organised for conference, to make sure that we're organised across the country. Um, there are inbuilt issues with momentum. Um, its membership is more based in London than in the North East. Um, but we are trying to sort that. We're trying to build it across the country, um, especially focusing on the North East and Scotland. Um, but yeah, it's it's always a work in progress as socialist projects always are. Um, but yeah, currently we're going through a refounding process, which is going to ballot next week. Um, that is essentially trying to change the structure of momentum, but we can get into that later. Okay. Um, so what are the aims of momentum then, Mark? Oh, I'm just trying to think of this. Cause I just, I just tend to go. I, I mean, it's to, well, Pass. I'm going to pass to Andrew again because he. What <laughs> that is for? Sorry, I, I should have looked at that. I've been having to do all the all the green new, the motion we passed. I've forgotten that. Um, Momentum's values are to try and democratise the Labour Party, um, and inbuild grassroots socialism throughout the Labour Party, and make sure that it's member-led democracy that that is in charge of the direction of the party. Um, so that means uh, trying to get motions adhered to by the leadership, motions that are passed at conference, um, but also more generally, Momentum believes in socialism. So really, that is an attitude of democracy across society, democracy in the economy, democracy in civil society, but also democracy within the Labour Party. And that is obviously at the moment a bit of a novelty, but it is definitely something we're trying to promote. Mm. So at the moment you've got you've got a situation in the Labour Party where things are being reported. So let's let's talk a little bit about the UK Labour Party. This is something that we actually don't really tend to do that much on Socialist Think Tank. We tend to talk about um, broader issues of socialism, but this is going to focus right down on what is going on in the UK Labour Party and in momentum. Um, again, I don't did did anyone mention the fact that basically momentum used to be a mailing list. It used to be like it, so. It, it grew out of the Jeremy Corbyn for Leader campaign, and it became about who controlled that data to try and organise the left because it was a very data-driven organisation. But um, you know, so we're going to focus on on what is going on in the UK Labour Party, but then go more broad because I think these this policy platform that's been voted upon is something that we're talking about, like the bigger ideas of socialism, the bigger ways of changing the world. So um, at the moment, it's been reported, like, say, for example, in Wakefield, uh, local members have um, have resigned. The local executive 
the executive committee of Wakefield constituency Labour Party resigned en masse this week because there is a by-election going on and there is a selection process for an MP, um, sorry, for a for a, um, a, a, a candidate to stand as, as their as their candidate for MP. Uh, and the people that they wanted on locally weren't allowed to be on the on the shortlist. So members will get a vote on who they want to be their next um, prospective parliamentary candidate, as they're called, but won't actually get to choose from who they wanted to choose from. So it's a way of, like, given the appearance of democracy without having a full democratic process there. So there are challenges within the Labour Party at the moment. And Keir Starmer himself had said that local members must choose their must choose their candidates the local members don't feel like they're doing that and you know there are things that have gone on a conference that was actually a rule change at conference that that had to happen so where where does this put an organization like momentum who are trying to do things who are trying to like kind of i guess engage with the the internal democracy of the uk labor party and that seems to be kind of in some people's view, being ignored. Where does that put some an organisation like Momentum? It's certainly going to be difficult, but we have to just keep on trying. Because, I mean, one of our the NCG, Mish Rahman, said something really interesting at um, at, at, at the World Transform this year, and uh, uh, about how one of the things that made the Corbyn process project quite hard was we didn't have people in the in the Labour Party in the major positions because um, we never had the machine and that's something I think we do need to do but with this we have got to say excuse me this 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 isn't correct this what you did because apparently um, if I remember right the rule change used to have to have three members of the lo- appointed by the local executive and it only had one and then there was three members of the NEC. I'll stand corrected on that. I was reading that earlier today. But I do think momentum, we need to grow group together. One thing I find in socialism uh, is it can be that we we are very pure at times, ideologically pure. So people won't work together and we all need to work together. I may disagree with people on, on some points, but what I can, I want to work together with people. That's why I'm, I'm in momentum. I don't agree with all everything the momentum puts forward but i work with what i can and i think we do need to be there in momentum i think um i think the wakefield situation's a really tricky one um i think it's tricky because the left has a limit to how much influence it can have in the labor party um the nature of the rule changes that were passed at conference um mean that we've got 38 left-wing MPs and you need 40 left-wing MPs to support a left challenge to the leader. So that's the, that's the key tactical issue facing us. But in terms of Wakefield specifically, I mean, it's clearly in direct contravention of the motion passed by City of Durham, CLP. Um, by the way, excellent work from Brenda Stevenson, um, Angela Hankin, uh, all the all the brilliant people um, in City of Durham. I'm sure Sheila and Matthew were involved in that as well. Um, 
but it was clearly in direct contravention. And what we saw from the NEC and what we saw from the leadership when that motion passed was an attempt to subvert it, an attempt to ignore it by bringing in a legal team that said it was unenforceable. Now, we know that there are legal challenges to running a, a political party, especially a political party on the scale of Labour. But the reality is the spirit of that motion was incredibly clear and there is no way that that could not have been codified into Labour Party rules and could not have become Labour Party rules. The motion itself was arguing that local um, CLP should be equally involved as the NEC is um, in the shortlisting process of candidates. When we look at Wakefield, the shortlist has become two candidates who aren't from Wakefield. The person who should have been on the shortlist or probably should have been on the shortlist is the deputy council leader in Wakefield, um, who was up for election or the council was up for election at the most recent local elections. Um, and he wasn't allowed on the shortlist. And quite frankly, one, it undermines our ability to govern locally. Um, it undermines the local representatives' um, political legitimacy. But secondly, it completely gets in the way of, a mem of members' rights to choose their candidate. I mean, the whole point of the Labour Party, the foundation of the Labour Party, was supposed to be that working class people could have an influence over politics. When you look at the Liberals back in 1900 or the Tories back in 1900, it was the aristocracy and it was the capitalists that were choosing the MP candidate. Labour was there to try and let working class people stand in Parliament and pick their parliamentary candidates. And this week we've seen yet again an attempt from professionals in Westminster to try and cherry pick candidates rather than letting working class grassroots democracy lead the way forward for the party. Do you, do you think that is, um, do you think the left are kind of a little bit naive about this? In that, like, I've heard a lot of people saying about the Labour Party, it's our party, it's our party, almost like as if by right it is this left-wing, ideologically the same as them party. But history doesn't tell us that story. History doesn't no. tell us that story at all. You know, it's a, you know, it's been a party with socialists in it rather than uh, something that's really pushing for socialism. And that kind of... That you talked about the liberals there, like so many liberals at the beginning switched sides and you know became because we do, in my view, MPs are elected aristocracy in this country. You know, it's not really a democracy like a lot of a lot of countries have. It's a different type of democracy. It's an elected aristocracy, um, and some people fit in very well with that, and some people who are drawn to that are those kind of people who. Yeah, they did go to Hogwarts, you know, when they went to school, <laughs> you know, not really Hogwarts, you know, but they, they went to those kind of posh schools where like it's designed to intimidate working class people who went to school in a in a 1950s cuboid, you know, like it it's not it, we don't fit in there, the working class. So do, we, do you think we have this rose tinted view of what the Labour Party always has been on the left? I think we can sugarcoat it, definitely. Um, and actually, the history is a very, very complex one, as a history of a 100-year-old political party would be. I think the origins of it, the, the ideals that 
Keir Hardy had when he founded the Labour Party um, as a as a child who worked down mines in Scotland was one of, of working class empowerment. But the reality from, for a lot of the history of the Labour Party has been enforcing austerity, whether that's in the 1930s from the 1931 government where we had Ramsay MacDonald taken over. That often um, there was cases of working against trade unions as within the first um, government of the Labour Party that was actively undermining trade unions. In 1945, perhaps you can argue that that's, that's the perfect Labour, Labour government, but the reality was um, it still pursued imperial yeah. ideas of Britain's role in the world. Um, and it still perpetrated many, many problems. It, you know, it didn't abolish homophobic legislation. Um, it didn't do so much. I think what we can tell from the whole history of the Labour Party is that the fight for socialism runs through it. If you can take the Labour Party, you have a chance of getting socialism in the state of Britain. But if you're outside of the Labour Party, you're either in the Liberals or the Tories or the SNP or whatever, and you might influence them that way, but you're not going to influence them towards socialism. Um, or you're on the margins. When we look at the history of British socialism, there, there have been the Communist Party of Great Britain and the Socialist Party of Great Britain and Tusk and, and many other parties. They've rarely made a significant impact. When we take over the Labour Party as the left, when we run the Labour Party and, and try and push for democracy, we see a groundswell of socialist projects across the country. I mean, this is a great example. Socialist Think Tank was a socialist project partly inspired by Corbyn's Labour Party. Momentum's a great a great example but you see cooperatives you see mutual aid i mean when covid began mutual aid began and mutual aid is something that is cooperative and it is socialist to its core so i think it's yeah you're right labor is labor is not a party with a pure socialist history um but it is a history of us fighting for socialism within it and I think that is the history that we've got to draw on to be proud. And, and just sorry, quickly to bring it back to Wakefield. It's very hard as well when we have a minority on, on the National Executive Committee. Um, anyone who knows the history well will know that, that through the 1980s, when a very similar style of leadership was at, at the helm of the Labour Party, um, we, the left was in a very difficult position. Um, not it, There was a block of left-wingers, people like Tony Benn, Eric Heffer. There was a block of soft lefts at that time, people who we wouldn't these days refer to as soft lefts. Um, David Blunkett, Margaret Beckett on the NEC. And they could often be won round with Tony Benn's side. But that changed significantly from 1987 onwards. Now we're in a position where it's the left versus the right. And that is the position on the NEC. With, there is very few soft lefts on there. And there are very few soft lefts that work with the left at the moment. And that's a challenge for us. We need to build a, a coalition between the left and the soft left where we are in the driving seat, like Tony Benn was. Excellent. Um, th thanks for that description. Um, and we are joined by our... The the guest that I said was going to be coming here, I wasn't telling lies. Uh, there, is a, there is a guest coming here. Um, so... 
Hello, how are you doing? And uh, I love I love your Palestine badge, by the way. Solidarity with you. I'm wearing my Palestine T-shirt tonight. Uh, the socialist think tank one. You can buy them from our website if you want. Um, but uh, would you like to introduce yourself as well and tell us about how what, how you were involved in Momentum? Yeah, thanks, Paul. I'm really sorry for the delay. Um, our youngest um, was a marathon. Bedtime even more of a marathon than usual. <laughs> so I'm really sorry about that. Um, yeah, and thanks very much for having me on. So yeah, I'm Shonali. Um, I'm uh, Shonali Bhattacharya. Um, I'm National Secretary for Momentum and a London Regional Rep. Um, I was elected to the National Coordinating Group um, in July 2020. Um, so yeah, it's really great to join you and thanks very much for having me on. You're absolutely uh, incredibly welcome here and uh, it's nice to have someone as well who's speaking from a position um, within Momentum Structure. So what we've had a chat about so far is we've talked about like um, what Momentum are and what Momentum have been, you know, you know where they came from and, and so on. And we were also talking about like the Labour Party in general. So we've talked about whether people are kind of um, a little bit... I don't know, like a little bit romantic about the idea of what the Labour Party is, what it has always been, and whether or not it's been this like, you know, oh, this is our party. Lots of people will say on the left, this is our party, how dare they take it from us? My personal view is you've got to be realistic. If you're within the Labour Party and you're trying to fight for socialism within it, you have to know that it is a fight. It is not, it is not something that is given to us we do not have this by right you have to fight for it so um but like tell us a little bit about what you feel momentum is and what you feel momentum's for yeah absolutely i mean uh, momentum is um the biggest membership uh, socialist organization in the uk and obviously we um the organization was um initially established as the jeremy for leader campaign um, and that was, you know, that was Momentum's purpose to um, to um, support and defend Jeremy Corbyn's like leadership of the Labour Party. And we all know, <laughs> we all know how badly that battle that was. And I think you're really right to identify that, um, you know, the place for socialists, I'm afraid, within the Labour Party as the position for socialists in most, you know, sections of the state. It's, it's a battle um, because, you know, that the, the, the Labour Party obviously was um, initially founded as a, you know, a vehicle for the Labour movement, but that has changed a lot. And even at that point, you know, there are all sorts of compromises. And um, so, yeah, I mean, yeah, I absolutely agree. And Momentum Now, I mean, we were elected on an insurgent platform in many ways. Um, I was... Um, I've been a local member of my um, group in Northeast London since the beginning of Momentum. So I was an active local member and an organiser. Um, and I stood quite uncharacteristically for the NCG. I'm not someone who tends to stand for national positions. Um, as most of us on the NCG who are elected as regional reps, really, we're not, you know, we're just not the sort of people who tend to do that. But we stood as a cohort. Um, because of a belief in the platform um, that we were standing on, which was essentially that momentum, the biggest power that momentum has is the membership. That, you know, we have thousands and thousands of members, 20,000 members still. Um, and that that is absolutely has to be the driving force behind momentum. Otherwise, it's sort of like, what is the, you know, um, 
it's sort of like what's the point of this <laughs> you know it, to be a mass membership organization you have to empower the membership so um that's what we that's the platform that we stood on and i guess that's what you know that goes hand in hand to not just our relationship with the labor party but um what momentum is as a as a as an organization just across the board so you know our members um you know we sort of like support our members to push socialist principles and socialist policies in the labor party but i think it's really important not to be romantic about it and of course we've seen how badly socialists have been treated over the past you know couple of years it has been really like just objectively really awful um but also objectively not very surprising um because they we really spooked the establishment in in 2017 we really scared you know we really scared them um and that pro the, the right-wing project has been to try to make sure it never happens again so of course they have done a massive you know uh u-turn they've tried to close that overton window as soon as possible as tightly as possible um and they're really trying to sort of row back on all of those progressive ideas and all of that sort of um, hope and inspiration that we all felt. And I guess that sense of camaraderie that we all set, felt, um, they're really trying to sort of disintegrate that as soon as possible. So what Momentum offers in many ways is both a chance to continue that project within the Labour Party, but also like realistically we stood because there isn't a shortcut to socialism anywhere, not in the UK, not anywhere. There isn't, um, you know, I think just objectively speaking, there is no sort of like clear electoral route to socialism. We have to be fighting this battle on all fronts. Um, and there's a really real material need for us to be building socialism in our communities, despite of and regardless of the Labour Party leadership, because our communities are suffering. We are getting absolutely smashed in the workplace. Our workers' rights are being diminished. Um, our basic human rights are being diminished and, you know, momentum needs to, you know, momentum members need to be, you know, acting in their communities, in their workplaces at a grassroots level, as well as, as within the Labour Party. It, it's just, um, yeah, we, we just have to be working on all fronts. So I think that's where, like, you know, we need to really be really clear eyed, not be romantic about it at all, as you say, uh, and just get to work. Um, you know, we can't really afford to see the Labour Party as some sort of, I guess, like a, our team. It's not our team. <laughs> you know, it's a vehicle that we need to wield, just like everything else, um, to, you know, to further the interests of the working class. Hmm. Um, there's some there's some interesting things, uh, some interesting comments coming in. Uh, it leads me to a question. Does anyone on this panel think that everything Momentum has done and everything about momentum is perfect and they have made no and momentum have made no mistakes does anyone think that no no <laughs> okay it's good because there's um what i've noticed is um momentum comes in for a lot of criticism and it's probably like in 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 a lot of respects the criticism is deserved but that doesn't mean like there's everyone deserves criticism. Not everyone gets it right first time and things like that. And I think what you're trying to do at the moment with this policy platform is try to drive that like that membership driven um, aspect through. Um, so yeah, it it appears that um, we're all on the same page with that one. No one is here to say that everything Momentum has ever done is in is uh, completely 
um, without question. Uh, so hopefully that answers a couple of the questions that were coming in in the chat there. But um, nice things in the chat as well. Nice to hear from Mish, who says, great comrades in the show tonight, uh, Mark, Mark, Paul, Andrew, and Shanoli. So um, hi, hi, Mish. Nice to see you. He also earlier on said that the job of the NEC is to uphold the rules when we're talking about the Wakefield election. Um, and yeah, I think we'd agree there that that would be the job of the Labour Party NEC uh, to uphold the rules, and that is not currently necessarily happening. So... Let's go on to this policy platform. So what we're going to be doing is if we go through the policy platform, I'm going to go one at a time, starting with the most popular. Um, and I think this is the one that your CLP has passed today, Mark. This is Labour for a Green New Deal. So why is this so important? Why is, why is Labour for a Green New Deal so important for left-wing politics and is so important for the left. I've had interesting, an interesting exchange today on social media, um, basically accusing the left of being at, the, at fault for absolutely everything that's going on and because, um, because left-wing people, uh, someone said, uh, left-wing people like George Soros. And I tried to explain that billionaires are not left-wing in the slightest. But anyway, um, so why is the Green New Deal such an important policy platform for the members of Momentum? Um, who wants to go? Mark, you tell us about your CLP today. What did they say there? Fortunately, we didn't pass this one, but it was. But anyway, I do think we need... It was the one for our energy and ship we passed. But anyway, we'll talk about that later. And it was the branch... Close. Never mind. I'm um, sorry. Yeah. Um, basically, we need a Green New Deal. We are about a decade away from uh, from crop failure. If we do not do something very soon, we there is no turning back. I, I mean, I remember watching a a, a thing with uh, Bear, Bear Grylls and, um, and 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 Barack Obama of all people, and, and Barack said something which I thought was really clever. He talked about how. We have to pull off the gas pedal, otherwise we're going to have to slam on the uh, on on the brake. And I think one of the ways we can stop easing off the green off off the gas is is by a green new deal. I'd love to see more of talk about a Lucas plan because not many, I don't think any of us work in any of the affected industries, and that's one thing I think so we do need. One sec, Mark. Um, what is a green new deal, and what is a Lucas plan? The Lucas plan was. Um, for those of you who don't know, it was something that happened back in the 60s where Lucas, who, who were a major UK defence um, contractor actually, worked out a plan to make things like wind turbines rather than helicopters and various things like that. Sadly, it failed, but I do think that would be something. But the Green New Deal is a, new, is a transition to a greener economy that we need to be making by looking at investing in green new jobs. And Navarro did a brilliant... Um, podcast series about how to change people over because it's not that different when you look at look at the North Sea oil people and, and some of the things they do moving some of them out of those industries into um, greener ones I mean there, there's some great things here you know you look energy bills are skyrocketing we need to do something about all of these things buses even working from home it'd be interesting to see what would, what the what the power, what, what happened with the power, you know, with the, the not everybody
everybody travelling into an office, how has that affected that in 2000 where people were working from home? There's things like that. I do think we need to be looking at a Green New Deal. Hmm. Andrew? Yeah, I think, um, so there's been debate in the past around the wording New Deal because it evokes Roosevelt's New Deal of 1930s America. And there's this question of whether a Green New Deal commits us to a capitalist growth model um, that is gauged at using green technology to create growth. There's a debate within green economics as to whether that would ever be possible, whether we need to reduce growth or whether we can continue growth. I think what's clear about this plan and this specific Green New Deal that Momentum's um, membership has voted for and put forward is that it is really, really radical. And it's about changing the whole nature of society. I mean, if you look at public ownership, I mean, here is a proposal for pub public ownership models across the economy. Um, that means energy, mail, rail, water, manufacturing, green technologies and finance. I mean, these are really, really radical changes. I mean, the most radical of all of them is finance. Changing the way that the finance system works internationally would be a huge change for global capitalism. London is, the, is one of the crucial centres for removing wealth from the global south, for promoting unsustainable technology and unsustainable production processes that primarily hurt people in the global south um, and taking that money and hoarding it in Britain. If we change that and we give democratic control over finance, if we put politics back in economics, where it always is, but people refuse to see it, then, then we can really change the whole, the whole nature of culture and the whole nature of world capitalism. And that, I mean, you may think that this is quite ambitious for Britain on its own. It is. Britain is not a world leader anymore and it shouldn't view itself as that. But in terms of the finance sector, globally, we are one of the great finance hubs. And so introducing a Green New Deal would be a huge change. I mean, looking at this Green New Deal, um, it would provide, it, it's not just about providing green transition. One of the things you hear from right-wing commentators, whether that's Darren Grimes or the people on GB News or Talk TV, is that the green movement is about trying to get in the way of ordinary people's lives. But actually, this is about trying to improve people's lives in the workplace, but also outside the workplace. Improvements in rail, improvements in energy will save people money. It'll reduce gas prices, it'll reduce electricity costs, and it'll improve public transport. And that's just a society I want to live in. Like, I, I just want to live in that. I don't, I don't want to have to pay extortionate amounts of money for electricity and gas. Um, Sean, Sean Lee, if you can um, also give give us your opinion as well, and also answer, there's an interesting question coming from Jacqueline Hemmings saying, what's the difference between the Green New Deal and a Green Industrial Revolution? I don't well, know whether I'd be able to answer that one personally, so um, maybe you will or won't, I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, that goes back to what Andrew was saying. I mean, that, that in lots of ways is a question of framing, and obviously... Um, under like uh, Rebecca Long Bailey, who sort of like co-authored sort of the Green Industrial Revolution along with um, like Comrades at Platform and other people across the left. Um, 
I was I think it, that was sort of more question framing about trying to root these ideas in I guess more of the British sort of yeah like British radical culture um and and also a lot of the painstaking sort of work that went behind that a lot of the stakeholder management was about bringing the unions on board like bringing the labor movement on board and that's why as mark says like this idea of the just transition is so crucial to making sure that worked because comrades have done like an awful lot of work making sure that yeah like for instance people who work in, on, on oil rigs understand that this is not about taking their jobs away it's about um having a transition into uh renewable energies that skill people up that create better green jobs and that hand in hand in that with that um needs to be better workers rights and, and needs to be greater yeah, democratic workers control of these industries as well because the workers who yeah the workers who are in these industries actually know them best so um so that's yeah that's broadly speaking it's a question of framing i think what's really um important about this motion is how clearly it it, it demonstrates that um economic justice climate justice and racial justice are absolutely interlinked like intrinsically interlinked and this has been like a key, like the key plank of our platform on the NCG is we're trying to sort of really root um, eco environmentalist thinking in socialism, because we, we're not going to be able to overcome climate collapse unless we radically change our economic system. And our economic system is hurting people, not just in the global south, but actually disproportionately black and brown working class people here and in northern Europe now. Like that is just the reality on the ground. And you don't hear about it. Uh, and we don't talk about it very much because those are the people who tend to get the least possible um, attention from our uh, captured state press. Um, so that's why this, this, like, so I think this, I mean, in many ways, this, um, in many ways, this motion um, could be a minimum program for a socialist government. Like, you know, it, 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 it's not just really about um, all the brilliant things that Andrew and Mark were talking about, but it is really about um, like full, like, you know, it talks about the right of people and nations to self-determination and to control their own resources. So it actually is a, a argument against extractive capitalism, which is not just destroying the global South, but is actually destroying our planet uh, and our future. So it's, it's an incredibly ambitious, but actually completely common sense motion. There isn't actually an alternative to this if we're going to survive as a species. And it really is like, you know, I think when we, I think when we like forward our ideas as socialists, we always have to be couching it in these terms that this is absolutely bottom line common sense stuff. There isn't an alternative. All of the, like all of the ideas around extractive capitalism and wealth hoarding, that is the sort of like extremist position that people hold, like that is what's killing us. I'm so glad um, you framed it in that way because uh, for me it's it's so important for people to understand that capitalism and perpetual growth and exponential, like you know, the, because the perpetual growth of capitalism has to be by its nature exponential. Um, it's completely unsustainable, completely unsustainable, and you're looking at an entire new model. So I suppose that's a really good answer of how that's different from a green industrial revolution, which had elements of this, but it's a more um, it's a more overarching theme that this needs, the whole system needs to change and we need to move towards something sustainable. Um, Amelia Washbourne's asked, um, how do we afford it 
it will be expensive, she said. Um, how do we afford? So I guess what she means is the transition away from fossil fuels towards renewables. Um, the problem is that for, for me, and I'll, I'll just start you off here, um, the, the problem is the best time to have done this is many, many years ago. It would be very, very cheap by now had people invested in. And I suppose even in 2010, when we're starting to become world leaders in onshore energy, onshore wind, um, and then they banned onshore wind, the cheapest form of renewable energy and things like that. So, But the, the next best time to start, I suppose, other than 10 years ago, I guess, is now. So we're going to have to do something about it now. Um, so, yeah, how will we afford it? Does anyone want to come in on that one? I'd, I'd love oh. to come in on that. If oh, yeah, you go for it, yeah. I don't know if any of you seen, you probably have, all of you have probably seen this, but there is a really striking set of figures, a bar chart that was part of the Green Industrial Revolution policy platform that was put, put out by platform that showed the amount of government subsidy that goes into keeping the fossil fuel industry afloat. It is not, it's not a profitable industry. We are bankrolling the fossil fuel industry. Um, we are putting enormous amounts of as our government as our as our great leaders like to say taxpayers money into the fossil fuel industry so actually we're wasting that money and we're putting that money into a, into into an industry that's destroying our planet and destroying our livelihoods we take that money and put it into renewables as you say the best time is now um it's a no-brainer actually the money is there the money is actually always there this idea about cost this idea about, um, you know, this austerity mindset is a made up, it's a made up idea. You know, it's not about money. It's about resources. It's about timing for sure. We're running out of time, but we're not running out of money. There's too much money in too few pockets and we need to redistribute it and we need to take it out of the fossil fuel industry. Yeah. Money yeah. isn't, money isn't real, is it? It's like, Money is made up, whereas the real things are your actual resources, so your, your natural resources and the amount of work people are willing to put in. That's what's real. Money's just something other people make up. Otherwise, you wouldn't get so much money from doing crazy financial transactions that don't make any sense to anyone and all these financial instruments and so on. But uh, that's, I suppose that's for another time. Uh, Andrew, sorry. Yeah, no, it's all right. Um, the So there's a couple of aspects of this policy program that need to be focused on when we talk about cost. The first one being energy. So I think the, the first question is how do people afford energy as it is? The current energy industry is unaffordable for the consumer and that's an issue. When we look at the Northeast, um, an area that was historically an energy capital of Europe through the mining industry, we have an incredible potential for energy, offshore wind energy off of our coast, and it would rebuild our economy. I mean, in this policy platform, it says devolving powers to the UK's regions and nations is necessary to develop democratic models of ownership and control. If the Northeast controlled their own offshore wind energy firm, it would be able to export energy to most of Western Europe. The Northeast has the capability to power most of Western Europe. It could become the energy capital of Europe and be able to fund lev leveling up agendas within the Northeast. And it would be a self-sustaining model. You look at rail. I mean, first of all, let's look at nationalized rail compared to privatized rail. Virgin trains went bust, LNERs going strong. 
But also, I mean, let's look at, you're completely right, money is an ideological concept. Um, but the, the natural resources necessary for different types of green industrial revolutions versus green new deals is important to look at. You look at the electric car industry, it's incredibly reliant on relatively scarce minerals. So cobalt, lithium, um, stuff that would take an incredible amount of resources to mine from the earth. You look at rail and it's a sustainable industry that we have, that is um, not individualized, it's a collective system. If we expand rail across the country, it's less resource intensive than replacing every car that's currently in existence, never mind the replacing of, of electric cars as they become obsolete, as they become used. Rail is a much more sustainable way of going about transport. So when we talk about cost, we need to say, yes, there is a, a fiscal cost to things. Um, there is fiscal cost that, and that obviously has to be addressed. I think John McDonnell did that very well with the last manifesto and explained that through public bonds. But in terms of the real cost, as you talk about the real natural cost of things, this is the solution. The, the collective approach to these issues is the solution. Now, what I'm going to do now is the second policy platform that was voted upon, and this is how important it is, was just what you were talking about there, Andrew. And I'm going to link that. You've perfectly segued into this one. It says the two linked crises, the cost of living crisis and the climate crisis. So our our climate crisis is also pushing us into a situation where it's extremely challenging to live, you know, and and that's a, it, it's really a it's not a cost of living crisis. It's a cost of capitalism crisis, isn't it? Because that unsustainable growth, that unsustainable profits, we're seeing like energy bills flying through the roof um, and also profits for Shell, haven't they um, more than doubled in a year um, to I think from 3 billion to 8.1 billion or something along those lines. Um, this, this again, we're linking back to unsustainable growth. We haven't heard from you in a little while, Mark, so I'm going to bring you in now is that um, hopefully you've got something good on this one. I don't feel like uh, I want to don't want to put you under pressure here. Uh, you always put me under pressure as always. <laughs> but we need to. There is if we don't change soon, there is going to be. And have I unmuted myself? Good. Yes. Um, we are going. There is going to be a massive crash. We we can't afford to drive to work. In, in the, I was looking at the petrol costs just up the road from me and it's like whoa one pound 67 it was like half that last year during the covid i mean we we have to we have to change we we can't keep on uh with this 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 the way we are go, going and we need more more money i mean people often say one of the things that the conference was going to result we want the conference to evolve to do is a minimum wage of 15 pounds an hour is that going to be enough soon i've seen some people talk about it should be 16 pounds an hour but when you think about it if it kept, if the minimum wage when tony blair and co had put it in it would be about 20 pounds an hour now just if it had kept up with inflation if it had kept up with boardroom pay now this is Going back to when Ed Miliband was in, it should be around £28 an hour. And if apparently if it had kept up with house prices, it would be £35 an hour. So if, if the minimum wage was the same as when it came in, it would be £35 an hour now if it had come up with, with um, within price. And also zero-hour contracts, we need to get rid of them. Does anybody have zero-hour pricing? 
you know, I've only worked four hours, so therefore this week, so therefore I should only pay four hours worth of cost for for those those things. The thing is, zero hour contract is an interesting thing for work for the bosses, but not for the workers, because how do they they don't they don't have variable costs. Hmm. Um. Speaking of um things like rail and and I think uh, Jacqueline Hemmings has asked if there is a vast increase in rail travel could it affect safety so I'm going to ask you that in a second as well and I've also I'm interested from a personal point of view here I absolutely love cycling um, and I've seen a rise in e-bikes now I don't believe it's sustainable to have um, a lot of electric cars I don't think we've got the the resources and things like that, but it might be sustainable to have more things like e-bikes if there was a proper infrastructure in order to use those um, and, and link that up with a rail system. So is this something that's like kind of, is that on the agenda? I'm going to come to you, Shanoli. So um, is, that, is, is that something that's been thought about, like linking things like cycling, e-bikes, um, rail travel, all those things is a is a kind of a networked policy. Uh, we actually we haven't really discussed. That. I mean, that's a really interesting point. I mean, I, I have a lot of personal uh, views on that, uh, but we haven't really discussed it within. We've discussed like national, you know, rail um, and transport, um, but not really that issue around bikes. Is a really good is a really good question. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen like footage from Amsterdam, like in the 1970s. Have you ever seen pictures of like central Amsterdam in the 1970s? It is, it looks like downtown Manhattan. It's like wall to wall traffic. Like you wouldn't believe, like it looks like you look at it and it looks like, you know, you're looking at a still from, I don't know, taxi or something. Um, when like the, when the Dutch government brought in all of that, like a uh, uh, sort of intervention around cycling infrastructure, and pedestrian infrastructure it's really really controversial like people were really angry about it at first it took quite a while um for that to be you know to that to be embraced um but now of course it's unimaginable that you you know we think like when we think about you know central amsterdam now we think it's always been like that but of course it hasn't <laughs> but you know they have clean air i mean i don't mean i'm not trying to idealize you know the netherlands but you know, like central Amsterdam, compare it to London. Like, you know, it's it's not just about safety um, on the roads, although that's massive. Like, you know, we've got young kids. It's like, you know, cars kill people. They kill people if you're sitting, sitting in them and they kill people on the roads as well. But a lot of people have to drive because our infrastructure is so poor. And I think you're really right to point out that that's not just about um, like public transport. That is about infrastructure um, around cycle lanes and pedestrianisation uh, as well. I think that's a really good point. Yeah, Jeremy Clarkson will be furious at us for talking like this. But um, so, and and yeah, so you think that'll be a, a safety improvement as well. Um, and do you have any other thoughts um, on, on, you know, these two linked crises, the cost of living crisis and the climate crisis? Like, why do you think they are, they are linked? I mean, in lots of ways, depressingly, the pandemic has exposed very clearly, um, you know, what, you know, how how our establishment responds to um, existentialist crisis. Okay, and I guess in lots of ways, we shouldn't be. Well, I don't know. I mean, it has been shocking. I'm not going to. I can't pretend I'm not surprised. You know that 
that that oh you know 150 i don't even know how many of us have died from covid now i don't because they're not even counting anymore but you know that 150 odd thousand or plus have died of covid that the the elderly could have been uh left so vulnerable that disabled people have been absolutely disregarded like you know this has been like the, the bare face of capitalism has been exposed um and so in this way like yeah the pandemic is absolutely linked to the cost of living and to the uh yeah the climate crisis because it really shows in case we were in any doubt how absolutely expendable our lives are we're only useful to this economic system in terms of the labor that we provide that is it there is nothing else that they have any interest in us for and that you know and i think in some ways it really does expose and it goes back to what we were saying before that you know we need to have like we need to to be unabashedly and confidently and always pursuing a radical agenda. Like, you know, we cannot, we can't really compromise on these things because the compromise is paid for in human life. And we've seen that. Um, it's really like, I don't know what the plan of our government is that it's becoming too expensive to live. I, I don't know what they, what they think is gonna happen in just, you know, six months when we get into the autumn. Um, obviously, they don't really care if we live or die, but, you know, I think that the, the, the mass suffering that is going to be unleashed at the moment is sort of unimaginable. Um, and that will have an impact upon um, our ability to provide our labour, which is the only thing I'm interested in. So actually, it's like a very precarious moment, but it's also sort of I have I have no idea. I don't think they have a plan, unfortunately. I think that they only know how to continue to pursue you know, corruption, greed, cronyism and profit. I don't think they really know what else to do. Um, so it, it really is to us to for us. Um, at this moment in time, obviously we know that the hard right are in government um, and on the streets um, and they're really angling to try and, and, and push through, um, you know, a, a really reactionary agenda. And of course they will have full support of the establishment. So we really need to be pointing out that uh, you know we have power, that our power is our labour power and our power is our community power. And we really have to be thinking about how we can work together to defend one another against the cost of living crisis. It's not going to be easy. And I think in lots of ways, um, we can look to things like the poll tax uh, and the resistance around the poll tax, but in lots of ways, there isn't really um, another benchmark to look at. Because in terms of like energy, like like you know energy, your energy being cut off, um, I don't think it. I think it's unprecedented actually. So um, I don't know. I mean, I just would say to everyone on this call: join your union and make sure that you are uh, fully versed up and an active trade union member. Because we're going to really have to get our heads together very soon and start organising about this sort of tsunami on the horizon. Yeah. I have a I have a little theory that the only time things are going to change is when uh, the people who bankroll the Conservative Party um, come to the government and say we can't sell our stuff anymore because no one's got any money, and I think that's when they're going to have to make a change. Um, Andrew, I haven't heard from you on this one yet. Yeah, sure. Um, so the first thing is is the question we were asked about um, rail safety. I'll address that first before I forget it. Uh, number one cars are the most unsafe form of transport and cause the most deaths out of transport. So reducing cars is going to increase safety. Um, number two, 
rail is when it's nationalized very safe when it's privatized it becomes more dangerous as we saw in the 1990s number three is is rail is one of the best unionized industries in the country and whether you like strikes or not i i imagine there may be one or two right wingers um, who decide to tune into this occasionally and hear the other perspective um they do stand up for their workers rights especially in terms of health and safety so actually trains are, are probably the safest option um on on this motion um yeah the two crises are definitely interlinked um because both of them at the core of it is capitalism um but the really exciting thing about this motion to me is the commitment to a minimum wage of 15 pounds per hour we're not letting up we're still going after the leadership on this last conference we saw a fiasco where Starmer said to his own shadow cabinet to, to argue against a £15 per hour minimum wage. And Andy MacDonald resigned over that. I think if we see the same thing again at this conference, we may, we may well see more resignations. It's, going, it's getting increasingly hard to turn around and tell working class people that they don't deserve a pay rise. And I think a lot of people, whether that's Ed Miliband, or other soft lefts within Keir's shadow cabinet will find it very hard to stomach doing that in this current climate. So I think that's really exciting. I think that we can pile on pressure on the leadership. And I think that's what Momentum will succeed in doing this conference. Um, I mean, the other aspect of this, the really, other, the really exciting other aspect of this is rent control. Um, this country has seen landlordism um, just mutate out of control since the 1980s. The decline of council housing has been a huge issue, um, but across the country we've seen houses get monopolised by landlords um, who are making thousands and thousands of pounds a month off of these properties. Um, it's got to change. And actually, when you talk to people, rent control is incredibly popular. We've got to also make the case for council housing, that's got to happen. But actually making sure that landlords and their current tenants are protected, that the current tenants are protected against the landlords, that's got to also be there. We can't only say council housing. Um, I mean, I would happily nationalise all the landlords' housing stock, but that might be a second-term policy rather than a first-term policy. Rent controls is, a, is an eminently pragmatic policy that will solve a lot of the crises, a lot of the crises faced by families across this country. Yeah, and that also like solves all sorts of problems with regards to the um, the increase in house prices, which is driven by landlordism, of course. But um, there's one, one question I want, and it, it could be any of you here. Can any of you explain why a £15 an hour minimum wage will not cripple small businesses because that is always what we get isn't it it's like well you know if I'm, I'm i'm running a small business and i think people forget that the left have nothing against a nice solid um small business that employs people that pays people well that looks after people you know there's there's nothing wrong with that on the left you know you don't want to nationalize everything um, you want to allow people to have freedom to do these, the, you know, these things as long as it's not massive corporations coming in and damaging societies. You know, we want to see a vibrant community where people are, are doing um, doing business with one another. So, what about those small business uh, owners? 
how will they not be crippled by a £15 an hour minimum wage? One of the things that was put through in the first time that we went for the £15 an hour was um, it was talked about was by Ian Hodgson when I was listening to the Knots Momentum podcast was should there be some form of benefit for small businesses to help them but also what would happen eventually is you give money to the lowest in the in in in, in society they spend it so surely those um those actual those actual businesses would actually um benefit by those people having more to spend uh, i mean when i'm not doing my main job i do work as a photo i do photography work and I remember speaking to friends who, who are in that line who work in, 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 in weddings and they're saying, we're not going to make any money this year because people can't afford to buy us, to, to rent us out, to do, do photography. And it was like, yeah, you know, but if we can get more money in the bottom, we, um, we will we'll help it. I mean, just go back to your thing on lithium. There's not enough lithium in the world to, to support every car, but that's another point which we could get onto. But, you know, we've got to, to think about this. If we can increase the minimum wage and somehow keep prices the same, maybe buy some form of benefits for businesses in the short term, it would be better to do that. And if more people are spending, it's like, I remember the story about, I don't know if you remember it, about Henry Ford. He was talking to, um, to a union, union boss and said, showing all these machines he said good luck getting the, these machines to pay union subs and this is the important thing Henry uh, the union boss turned around to Henry Ford and said and good luck trying to get those machines to buy your cars because if people haven't got money they can't buy things and that's one thing we forget my, my one of my my elderly relatives used to say money is round to go round and that's something that we need to actually Think about, and as I said earlier, £15 an hour is not that much when you consider, you know, if it had gone up with inflation, it'd be around 20 quid an hour. Boardroom pay, £28, and that was going back to 2015. If it was house prices, £35 an hour. We've just got to find a way, because if we don't do something soon, the whole, the whole system's just going to seize up. Money is not going to circulate. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for that, Mark. I think um, I think there's a lot of agreement there. Um, we're obviously in a in a system where a lot of money filters up to the top, and a lot of money's taken offshore, and that's our entire system. We want to put more money at the bottom. Whether those businesses, small businesses, would be supported with subsidies rather than subsidising low waged, uh, subsidising big corporations to pay low wages, which is what we currently do, isn't it? With um, with the idea of like a, a big a big, I don't know, I'll pick on someone who's uh, like maybe Tesco, if they pay a wage that's too low, then the, their employees have to have state aid and therefore it's because the company are making a massive profit and they won't pay people enough, that's what the problem is. So we want to get like those that money not taken away offshore by people, you know, taking it to shareholders, etc. Um I know that you could come in. Do you want to come in quickly here, Andrew? Just and then, uh, really and then I'm going to move on to proportional yeah. representation. I mean, this is always, the, the £15 minimum wage is always brought up in relation to small businesses. But when you talk to most small businesses, they're not worried about increasing their wages to the workers who normally they have very good relationships with. They're worried about the rise in rents. 
it's the rent that affects so many businesses. You walk around the Northeast, you see empty shop fronts everywhere. Now, the left has to address that crisis, crisis of our high streets, by bringing in rent controls on, on uh, commercial properties. That's what will stop money trickling upwards, as you say, and probably increase money being able to trickle downwards, although we don't want it to trickle downwards. We want money to be evenly uh, spread across the economy. But you get my point. Absolutely. Thank you. Okay, so I'm going to come to Shanley now and talk about uh, the third proposal, which is proportional representation. So what's all this about? What is what is proportional representation? And have we decided on what type of proportional representation? Or is this a kind of overarching idea? No, well, it talks about um, that decision being open to the membership. So, so let me find the actual line. Uh, Labour should convene an open and inclusive process to decide the specific voting system which it will commit to introducing in its first term in government. Um, now, of course, now this is this is this was also an, I, I can't remember if it tops the policy. I think this topped the policy primary last year. So it's an extremely popular policy with the membership. And it's unsurprising. Um, like we all know, like we all know our democracy is is a sham <laughs> let's, let's face it we weren't allowed you know we have we, we were stridently told we weren't allowed to have a socialist leader we've been stridently told you know we're not allowed to have a you know functioning internal democracy within our labor party let alone uh, within our uh, country so it's not surprising that momentum members um uh, place democracy extremely high on you know the list of things that we need to achieve um, in order to, you know, to, in order to create a fairer, unjust uh, country and world. Um, but yeah, proportional representation, we obviously have been a two party state since the, you know, the birth of, you know, the first elections. Um, actually, no, sorry, I know, I'm not going to go into that. That is actually not true. But anyway, for many, many decades, we have been a two party state. Um, and obviously what has happened, uh, except for Jeremy Corbyn, uh, and we're seeing again now, I guess, is that the opposition has effectively been co-opted um, by the establishment in order to neuter our democratic system and to try to, um, you know, try to create a situation where it's not possible really to have radical change and it's not really possible for ordinary people to have real representation within Parliament. Um, now, we've all probably been looking at things like, so for instance, the local elections um, in my borough, the turnout in some wards was as low as 24%. Um, you know, there's a real disconnect. There's a real sense of, of lack of morale. Um, and that's because people in many places feel that their vote doesn't count and they are right. Because, you know, if they, if they want to vote um, for a smaller party, um, or if their MP um, or the party at a local government level has a massive majority, um, it really doesn't matter if they vote or not. So the, they can almost predict what the outcome will be. Um, so there's, you know, so that that's the key thing. I guess another reason why um, people on the left, um, momentum members, are, I think, are keen to pursue PR. Um, it's not just a reinvigoration of our democracy. Um, it's also about allowing 
uh, a greater, um, you know, greater uh, multiplicity of voices within our parliamentary system. Um, you know, and that, and obviously, there's always an argument that that will also. The argument usually against PRs are you'll let the fascist parties in. Now, my argument would be the fascist party is already in. Like the 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 the, the, the Tory party has absorbed so much far right thinking that essentially they're enacting policies that the BNP in the 1980s couldn't even have dreamed of. You know, in their wildest dreams, they would not have been able to cook up you know, deporting people to Rwanda, for instance. Um, so I guess, you know, from my point of view, I, I really agree that I think that, uh, that actually the, the, the bonus, and I guess what we're pursuing is trying to allow uh, more radical voices to have a place in parliament, and that, that is gonna be very difficult without proportional representation. And it could really shake up everything in terms of uh, like the, the quality of political discussion and debate in our country, as well as the quality of representation. Excellent. Um, I'm going to ask you all in a moment. Um, so have a think about this. In an ideal world, what type of PR would you like? What? How would you? Would you have you got a system in mind that you think would really, really work for PR? But um, I'm going to talk more generally about the topic. To I'll bring Mark in now, and then I'll do Andrew last, and then you can all briefly tell me what um, what system of PR you would all use. So, Mark, I, I haven't really ever thought about it. It's interesting to note that Labour, for its NEC elections, uses single transferable vote. Uh, and that has been partly to dilute uh, the left that they, they that they brought that in. Um, I haven't really thought because I, I I've got to be honest. I voted in the last rev, rev, referendum on um, on proportional representation we had in the UK against and like like Shanali said against um, against uh, proportional representation because of the the fear of letting in the the right wing, but. I listened to a Labour Party and Democracy thing where they were were for PR uh, and our CLP, and he said, "Well, why don't we let them in and let them have a chat and let them be shut down by everybody else in Parliament?" One wonders, would 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 the BMP be so have so many members if their their MPs, for want of a better term, were being being shut down? I I haven't fully thought about it. There's a lot of things with with. Um, with proportional representation that would have to be answered, such as what happens if an MP was to cross the floor. Currently, we don't in our system we don't vote uh, for a party; we vote for an MP. So they could say a Labour MP could move over to the Tories, or vice versa. It's like, and um, we'd have to think about that. Um, I don't know. I, I we'd have to sit form away, but I think it would be we've got to think that PR. Under a PR system, you get more left-wing wing uh, governments than you do right. And currently, at the moment, it's partly because they're all, all the right wing is blocked into the to the Conservative Party, and we're all split between be that the People's Alliance of the Left, Labour, Liberal Democrats, and Greens, and that would form a way of, of proportional representation of getting more, um, more uh, coalition governments to actually form and that would give us more opportunity when you think about it mm. Andrew yeah I mean proportional representation is not something 
not something I'm against. Um, it's not something that gets me out of bed in the morning either. Um, it's I don't accept the view that it lets fascists in mainly because you're treating the electoral system like it's the cause. Um, the electoral system is never the cause of fascism. Fascism rises out of economic crises. Um, that was very, very clear in the, in the 1930s in Germany. It's been very clear in the 1970s with the rise of the National Front in Britain. Um, it's disenfranchisement from the entirety of society. It's, it's nothing to do with the electoral system. Um, and, and it's completely right to say that the Tories actually currently operate as a way of containing the pressure of fascism and, and actually allowing a great deal of authoritarianism through their politics. Um, I mean, proportional representation, it, to me, it doesn't, it doesn't solve the issue, the key issue of the constitution in Britain. Um, if we're looking at it from a more a liberal perspective, it's the, the constitution that fails to enshrine our human rights. You look at attempts to reform the constitution with the Fixed Term Parliaments Act. It was just repealed with a one-line motion by Johnson back in 2019. Um, we need a codified constitution, and I would support proportional representation being a part of that. I mean, I support this motion mainly because of the tactical role it plays for the left within the Labour Party. Proportional representation has been the absolute um, leading light of the soft left's policy initiative um, within the last 10 years. This is what the soft left within the Labour Party have really wanted. And by the left supporting proportional representation, it means that we can build that alliance. This isn't I mean, as I regularly see people on the left getting really annoyed at proportional representation, saying, oh, I'm not going to vote for that for ABC. And to me, the important thing is that this is, within socialism, a relatively marginal issue. And it is one that we can use to forge a consensus between the left and the soft left within the Labour Party so that we can kind of run the party with their support. Um, so I think tactically at conference, it's a really significant thing. The right wing will not concede this motion to them. They, we saw at conference, the right wing would not support PR. They wouldn't work, they wouldn't horse trade with unions to support PR, um, even though it would have solidified Sam's position. Um, and, and so I think it, tactically, it's a really important motion. I mean, I also support it because it was collectively decided by the Momentum membership. Um, and collective decision making has to be at the heart of socialism. It doesn't clash with with my core principles, and I support the collective voice of momentum. So, Shanley, mm. uh, what what particular do you have an idea about how this would work for you? Well, uh, okay. Well, I was a politics student. Uh, I mean, it's all different. <laughs> I mean, I have to say, like, I I do. I think that as close to full a full you know, democracy is possible, it, it is, is, is really, you know, STV, I mean, Mark's right to point out that, um, and well, Mark and Andrew are both right to point out that a lot of these sort of electoral systems are often sort of wielded for factional purposes. And yes, STV was introduced because the right wing of the Labour Party identified that um, it would allow them to gain uh, I think they gained one extra seat, two extra seats anyway, on the NEC. And that's, that's you know, um, but um, STV is, is, a, is a very democratic form of um, PR. Um, when the Lib Dems famously did their, like, <laughs> uh, 
um, their referendum, um, the reason they ended up with AV, uh, an alternative vote system, is because it's the least, like it's the, it's the, it's a, it's the form of PR that's most like first past the post, which is such a Lib Dem thing to do to run on a, a whole sort of platform that you're going to like pursue PR and then and then end up um, plumping for something that is almost like the status quo. Um, so yeah, I, I I think that yeah I I would you know I, I agree I, I agree with Andrew that this is something that the membership momentum is obviously very important to them, and I think uh, it is important alongside a broader socialist platform, and it's important because it could allow you know like a, a radical space into Parliament at the moment the Labour Party is supposed to be a broad church but it is not really functioning in that way. It's not functioning as a, as a coalition because socialist voices are being maligned and demonized and ostracized and et cetera. Um, and so this is like, I guess this is, this is an, a, a, another sort of like um, expression of, of dissatisfaction with that and an expression that things could be better. Um, so yeah, I would go like full as close to full democracy as possible. I, I think that you know when you commit to something, you should commit. See, I would, personally, I would turn things like this would never get through, but I would turn it up entirely upside down, and I would make people just um, elect PR at a local level, and then have those people represent there's a, 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 a more regional group and then a national group and so on. And I would have people picking from there. So the most important elections were your local elections. That's personally what I would do. Um, but I think one that could get through would be um, single transferable vote for your MP and PR for the upper house. I'd really like to see that an, an elected upper house based upon, and then you can have your list. You can have all the experts that they say that they so desperately need, which is why the Lords need to be appointed and so on. You could say, well, actually there's our list of experts um, and, you know, pick from them. Anyway, let's, uh, let's move on to public ownership of energy. We've got about 10 minutes. So we've got to do two of them in 10 minutes, but I think we've done quite a lot on energy. So I'm going to briefly go through this one. We've talked about energy quite a lot, but why should it be public ownership? And is this the kind of public ownership that people have in their heads? Or is this something entirely different? Is this a new form of public ownership that we're after? Andrew, I'm coming to you first. Um, well, it's got to be a public ownership that's that's transformative. It can't just be LNER. It can't be, you know, I drew on LNER earlier to show that when it's public, publicly owned, it's better run. And it is better run, but it's not perfect. And it's actually nowhere near perfect. Um, it's got to be beholden to the interests of the workers in the industry and to the democratic um, will of, of the country. Um, the aim for public ownership um, would be to make sure that it serves the needs of people so we don't see these um, spiralling um, energy bills. Hmm. Shonali, anything to add to that? Um, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, the reason why I think the reason why it's come up again, like because it's so pressing to people right now, because in many ways, what is in this motion, uh, it overlaps quite a lot with the, with the Green New Deal motion. But um, I would say that there's a lot of talk at the moment about um, a windfall tax on the big energy companies. Um, and it sounds very radical. So you're even hearing, you know, ordinarily quite right-wing MPs talking about a windfall tax. But the thing is, that is a drop in the ocean 
So we need to like what this what this motion is talking about is of actually like making sure that what we're experiencing right now never happens again. And that has to be full public ownership, it has to be democratic workers control, it has to be a, an ongoing, a permanent annual windfall tax. Um, you know, one off is not going to cut it, and it has to be part of a, a green a, a green and just transition. And I suppose with all the subsidies that the energy industry gets anyway, people don't realise like there's just been a was a bulb or someone like that that, that just got bailed out to a massive extent, um, an energy company, and you look at how much tax they pay and everything, and they actually make take rebates and everything. So, you know, um, public ownership makes sense from a point of view that like you know if you're gonna have to put money into public money into these things anyway. And even if they are making a loss, it's still not as bad as all these profiteers making that an even bigger loss. Um, Mark, anything on this? This is the one that we actually passed at um, my branch today, mm. and we'll go to our CLP on uh, on uh, on Tuesday. I think it's needed because we need to realise with our energy market, it's kind of a broker system. People like to think that they're getting green energy when they were signing up to these green energy companies. You didn't. You basically got the the energy that was coming down down the line from your that was provided we need to take out what we've currently got which is a broker system where each different energy company buys a certain amount of energy and then sells it back to you they don't you know i think that this is the one that i picked because i found all the some of the others with the green new deal all seem to be be crossing which is it's because everything is very close but I do think we need to be getting the basic monopolies back into public ownership. And as, as Andrew said, we need to look at the best way to do it. It can't just be like the old British Rail. Oh, well, we've always done it this way. No, we need to look at what is the best best way to do things. And I think that public ownership and monopolies is something that needs to happen, and that needs to happen quickly. Mm, yeah, you'd include water in that, I imagine. Yeah, which is the most bizarre monopoly that you've got going where you, you can't even choose your supplier and yet it's privately owned and they don't invest uh, back into the infrastructure in the way that they should. Um, okay, the final one. It's a, it's a big one, so we don't have much time to talk about. I'm going to come to you, Shanley, about this one to start off with. Um, advancing workers' agenda by repealing all anti-trade union laws. So all anti-trade union laws. Define an anti-trade union law. Um, okay, so it's all uh, everything, but uh, I mean, this is like it's interesting. Depends on the age of your some of your viewers, I guess. But you need to understand that a lot of the um, barriers to uh, being able to call strike action, to be being able to um, strike in solidarity with workers in other sectors, all of that wasn't. All of that is like relatively new, right? Um, and. So, yeah, we need to dismantle all these things, basically. It loops back to what we were talking about when I first joined the call. You know, it, it really loops back to the acknowledgement that the, the power that we have is the fact that the, the, you know, the earth spins on our labour, right? So that's what we have. We can withhold our labour. And for, for, for sure, the establishment get that. They have done everything that they can to put up barriers um, uh, in terms of us being able to express solidarity with one another as workers, uh, with us being able to withhold our labour as workers, for us to be able to organise in our workplaces confidently and safely. Now, of course, I don't want to like diminish the um, danger and violence that, that workers in other countries experience. We are nowhere near, you know, we are heroic comrades in Bangladesh or, you know, 
um, in parts of South America, but there has been a very effective um, uh, tightening of bosses' control. And of course, this year has seen uh, a massive uptick on that. I think that we've all been, I think I think you were talking at the beginning of the call when, when I was still um, mired in bedtime around uh, the P&O, like, you know, there's scandal, absolute scandal. That's one of the biggest attacks on the labor movement in my lifetime. You know, that is absolutely like, you know, that is out of control sort of like leverage of like power uh, between the state and, and, and corporate big corporations. So we can't do anything that we've been talking about unless we unleash the power of workers to organize. And um, all of these, all of, all of these things are like, I guess, um, being able to call, being able to call a strike, being able to pick it uh, in solidarity with, with, with other workers, being able to identify the connections that we have across sectors um, and, and, and being able to work together um, against, you know, like, you know, what is an increasingly brutal and authoritarian regime, which is attacking us en masse, regardless of what sector we're in. Um, so we have to be able to, you know, overcome that. So that's really this. This motion really is absolutely crucial because we can't really do anything that we've been talking about um, unless workers' rights are, rights are unleashed. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, Mark, anything to add to this one? I mean, it's, it's really important to be able to organise. If you ever have to try and cause call a strike, the, as we all know, that you've got to get so many percentage of, of the workers in the union to vote. It can't be done in certain methods. Or you know, and it, we need and and also solidarity striking. It would be wouldn't it have been great if unions could have worked walked out in solidarity with that, with not so much a union, but the kid, the the um, the, the strikers for for climate train change, the kids who were doing that. I mean, I it was great pre COVID to be able to go and stand with some of the the people in Birmingham on my lunch break. But wouldn't it have been great? We need people need to realise about striking work, striking workers don't get paid when they're on strike and we need to be able to just be able to to show our uh, our strength it's like nothing happens in this world without the um without the the agreement of the working class because if we stopped that's why a general things just wouldn't happen that's why a general strike is so powerful there's been a lot of social media content lately of people uh, talking about things that are not happening in France because they know what their trade unionists would do, um, which is very interesting to me. Um, Andrew, finish us off on this topic. Yeah, of, of the many thousands, if not millions, of missed opportunities of the Blair years, yeah. this, is, this is the big one. Um, the attack that Thatcher did on trade unionism was vindictive, and it was because the trade unions brought down the Heath government in 74. Um, working people in the 1970s really were at crossroads. They, they were, there was a debate within, within the world, effectively, as to who controlled the economy and the politics of society. And Thatcher was very clear that she should control the, the politics of society and the economy. Um, we, if we don't do this as the next Labour government, then, then Labour is, is pointless, it's redundant. Um, Labour is supposed to be the party of trade unions. Um, the ability to solidarity strike is probably the most key aspect of anti-trade union laws. We need the ability to solidarity strike. 
because our struggles are interconnected. When we see um, train workers on dispute because they're losing um, control over their working environment, it's the same issue facing other workers. It's the same issue that the bosses have control over the workplace, they have control over the wages. Um, I mean, you look at attacks on, the, the only issue I have with this motion is where do you stop with anti-trade union laws? I mean, academization of schools is an attack on trade unionism because it makes the workplace smaller. It means that people can't organize across um, their local area. Um, they're limited to the workplace. So solidarity strikes are key. For the new economy that has been built under neoliberalism, solidarity strikes key because they are built up by because the economy is built up by smaller workplaces especially the public sector so the ability to solidarity strike is fundamental um, and it is is the only way that workers will be able to actually genuinely take power absolutely brilliant thank you so much to all of the guests you've been absolutely brilliant you've been a pleasure to have on you'd all be very very welcome to come back anytime you like if um if anyone wants to become a member of Momentum, you can join Momentum if you want to, if you're a member of the Labour Party. Do you, can you be not a member of the Labour Party and yeah, join? Yeah, you can join without being a member of Labour. So it's a little bit like the socialist societies where if as long as you're not a member of something that would stop you being a member of the Labour Party. Yeah, is that about right? You can join our movement builders uh, section mm. if you're not a Labour Party member. Yeah. And um, like we have uh, particularly things like we're about to launch uh, a climate justice, uh, like political education group. You'll be able to join. You'll be able to join a lot of our extra parliamentary projects we've been running. Um, got a new project with Freedom Theatre Janine that we've just launched. You'll be able to join things like that. Okay, absolutely brilliant. Um, you can also, if you would like to, join Socialist Think Tank. That is absolutely free. If you want, you go to our website, socialistthinktank.com, and it keeps you in touch with what we are doing. And if we ever have any plans to do anything um, anything else, you will hear about it. Um, you can donate if you like. It helps us with our costs. It helps us get the content out to you. Uh, please do tell people about this. Please do share and uh, like us on all the different social media platforms we're on, which is Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, all those places, or Twitch as well, um, and uh, and probably some more. So uh, if you want to do that, please um, do get involved and you can get involved in the conversation and we will train you to do things that you want to do as well if you ever want to produce anything like we produce. So I am now going to say um, good night to everyone and uh, we will see you all um, very soon when what Shanali, uh, what, what Shanali was talking about there when um, she talked about P&O, we're actually going to do that I think next week now. So we've got a big update coming from um from the rmt and pno so that'll come out at some point either next week or this week so um take care everyone um and uh, have a have a lovely night and thanks once again to our brilliant viewers who have made such excellent comments you're a massive part of the show take care everyone and uh, we will see you soon Take the red flag flying there